0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more
1: information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com.
0: Man, I don't know about you, but I feel like I could go home right now and feel like I have been filled up today. And so these guys did such a great job leading us this morning. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And as you're turning there, uh, let me just start with a few things about the resurrection. Christianity, at its essence, is a resurrection religion. It's a resurrection, I mean, right at the center of of Christianity is the resurrection. I love how one pastor put it. He said, if the resurrection didn't happen, then nothing really matters. But if the resurrection did happen, then nothing else really matters. Now that's how important the resurrection is if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus in the room, if you're kicking the tires on this this morning, the resurrection is the place to start. If it did happen, nothing else really matters. If it didn't happen, then go about your life, man, trying to eke out as much joy as you can now. But if it did happen, it changes everything. The resurrection reminds us that with God, an empty tomb. Now think about what an empty tomb is. It's the place of death. It's the things where everything comes to its final conclusion. It's where things end. But the resurrection reminds us that an empty tomb with God and his power is actually not a place where things end. It's a, thing, it's a place where things begin. That's resurrection power on display. The resurrection functions like a movie trailer. It functions like a preview of coming attraction. The, the, the resurrection is reminding us that there is going to be a day when the resurrection power of God is unleashed on creation and everything that is wrong in creation is gonna be made right. Everything decaying is gonna be renewed. Everything broken down is gonna be rebuilt. The resurrection reminds us of that. The resurrection reminds us of the raw power of God that can take the worst of situations and make the best of situations out of that. The resurrection reminds us that Satan, sin, and death do not have the last word in our lives, God does. The resurrection reminds us of these things. And in Acts chapter nine, here is what is happening. In Acts nine, like a lightning bolt, the resurrection power of God that we see in the ability of God to speak or just to, to act and to raise a dead man back to life, that resurrection power of God, like a lightning bolt, flashes in Acts 9. And it flashes in the conversion of Paul. It flashes in this moment. It's almost as if God flexes his muscles, shows his resurrection power in this particular moment when Saul becomes Paul, when Saul is converted. That's what's happening in Acts 9. You've got to flash a glimpse of this resurrection power of God unleashed. Now if Paul could come back and he could stand up here this morning and talk about that moment on the road to Damascus, I think it'd be so interesting to hear him talk about that. I think he would talk about it in these sort of ways. That I was a Pharisee, and I was just doing my Pharisee sort of things, but then all of a sudden, one day something happened. I mean, it was like I was doing this, and then one day that happened. I think he would tell you, it's not that I was even looking for God. I was actually trying to avoid Jesus, and then one day I ran right into Jesus. I think he would tell you, I was living my life, doing my thing, and then one day everything about my life changed. And it's that one day that I want to think through with you. It's that one day that Acts chapter 9 shows us here. And I I just want us to think this passage through, to think through what are we learning from the conversion of Saul? What are we learning in the way that God redeems and rescues Saul? And I want to point out five things from this passage that we learn. When we look at Saul's conversion, five things that we can glean from his conversion. Here is thing number one. What, What can we learn from Saul's conversion? Number one. Saul's conversion shows us that Jesus makes people new. He shows us that God really does have the power to make people new, that God really can do that. Now let's just think about Saul, and let's think about Saul in a before and after picture. So here's the before picture. It starts all the way back in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being murdered. And right at the end of the chapter... It says that Saul was kind of overseeing this whole thing. He was witnessing and watching this. They probably put the garments in Saul's hands so that they could throw the rocks and stone Stephen to death. So, so Saul is approving of this. He's seeing it in, in Acts chapter seven. Then you get to Acts chapter eight, verse one, and we're told that Saul approved of Stephen's death. you see that in verse one of Acts chapter eight? He approved uh, of Stephen's death. And then widespread persecution broke out against the church. Not just kind of a small here and there, but like widespread. If you were a follower of Jesus, it just got really, really dangerous. And in Acts chapter eight, verse two, it says that Paul, or this man Saul, he was ravaging the church. Now, ravaging is, is big language, isn't it? He was ravaging the church. Like a tornado, he swept into the church, leaving it in waste. It, it goes on to say that he would go from house to house. And just picture this moment. I mean, like, th- these things have sights and sounds in it, right? Picture this. Saul's going from house to house, and imagine it's, it's Saul showing up on your doorstep today. He knocks on the door. You, you, you know, open the door. You, you, he asks you the question, do you believe in Jesus And you say yes to that. And all of a sudden he rips you and your family out of your house and throws you in prison. This is what Saul is doing, you know, kind of in the opening chapters here, you know, chapter 7, chapter 8. Then you get to chapter 9. And it says that Saul is still breathing threats. I mean, the man can't breathe without threats coming out of him. He's breathing threats and murder against the church. You know, if you want to just cut it to its core, um, Saul viewed Jesus as a dead savior, as a dead religious leader. And, And he viewed Jesus as a person who had deceived many people And now Saul had devoted his life to the destruction of Jesus and all of his followers, to this deceptive sort of movement. This was Saul. He was harassing Christians. He was persecuting Christians, troubling Christians. This was the the before shot that we see of Saul. Now we get to the the after. That was the before. Now we get to the after. And look down at verse 18 in Acts chapter 9. That that was the pre-shot. Now here is the post-shot of Saul. Verse 18. Verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Saul was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has not he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? Verse 22 But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, when I read Acts chapter 9 and I get to verse 22, I'm like, what is going on here? How do you go from breathing threats to that? what, what What is happening in this passage? Here is the only answer for what is happening. Saul is a converted man. He has met Jesus and has been changed by Jesus. That that is the only way you go from chapter 1, breathing out threats and murder against Jesus and all those following him, to, to verse 20. 20 verses later, verse 20, now he is not breathing out murderous threats against Jesus. He is proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue. I mean, what? how did... That is an utter change in a human being's life. And what is the reason for that change? What is behind that change? The Bible is clear. What is behind that change is is Saul has met Jesus. He has been converted, rescued, redeemed, saved by Jesus. You know, he he is um, essentially giving a visible kind of living symbol of what he later penned. In 2 Corinthians 5:17, Paul penned th- th- these words. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. But hear me. He is pinning those words later on in 2 Corinthians 5 because he first experienced those words. And Acts chapter 9 is the experience of that. Paul is saying, I was this and now I'm that. I was old and now I'm new. I was dead in my sin and now I'm a new creation in Jesus. He had experienced that in Acts chapter 9. He he had lived that in Acts chapter 9. You know, from this point forward, Saul is now known as Paul in the Bible. So so that he's got a name change that goes on. And that cosmetic sort of a name change is reflective of the deep heart change, the the utter difference that God has made in his life. When you think about the conversion of Paul, Paul is a visible illustration of the difference Jesus makes in a life. He He is a visible living illustration that Jesus changes people. And that Jesus can change you. He's living proof that that can happen, that Jesus can actually change people, and He's got the power to change you. See, the the, the way the Bible presents all of our condition um, pre-Jesus or before we meet Jesus is that we are dead in our sin. In other words, we are like the the core part of us. When you think like if you could cut a human heart down to its deepest part, here's what you would find: that we are sin-centered at our core. That's how the Bible presents us all. Now, I I don't think I have to give like a long proof of that. All you need is to have kids and you're gonna see that's true, right? You just need babies to see we are all born with a sin-centered core. And here is the difference Jesus makes. He fundamentally changes us. The core of us changes. The core of us goes from being sin-centered. The deepest part of us, we go from being sin-centered to God-centered. That is the difference that that God has made in Paul's life, and it's the difference that he can make in our life. It's a fundamental change that that Jesus brings. Conversion. It is a fundamental change at the deepest level of a human heart. Uh, Augustine is one of the early church fathers, and I love his story. He, uh, You know, pre-meeting Jesus, he was addicted to lust. I mean, just so into loose living and lust that, that from his own account, he just didn't think he could ever get out of it. He thought he would always be trapped in lust. And then one day he met Jesus and everything changed. And then one day he was traveling around the cities of Europe where he used to, you know, kind of run. And he ran into one of his old mistresses in his pre-Jesus days. He runs into the mistress and the mistress is deeply offended because Augustine gives, gives her no time of day. He walks right by her. And and so she's deeply offended, trying to figure out what's wrong. She's kind of angry at him. And then all of a sudden it dawns on her, oh, I know what the problem is. He just just doesn't know that it's me. He thinks it's someone else. So she calls back at Augustine and says, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine looks back at her and says, I know, but it's no longer I. Now that is the difference Jesus makes in a human heart. That yes, you may wake up in the exact same bed tomorrow, Your bank account may look exactly the same tomorrow. You may wake up in the same house, driving the same cars, doing the same job, all of those things being the exact same, but when you meet Jesus, you are different. You are new. This is the difference Jesus makes in our life. Part of what Saul's conversion shows us is that Jesus makes us new. Here's the second thing his conversion shows us. Saul's conversion is a result of a collision with the risen Jesus. Saul's conversion shows us what is down below all of our conversions. When when a person is rescued and redeemed by Jesus, Saul's conversion is showing us what happens deep down there. And Paul's conversion is a result of a collision with the risen Jesus. Now, you see this in chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. And this is how these couple of verses go. It says, Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around Saul. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, I want you to think about what Paul, kind of the mindset that Paul carried into Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Here's the mindset Paul is 100% convinced that Jesus is a dead religious leader. He's led people away, he's deceived many people, and this whole thing has to be stopped right now. That, That is what Paul believes, right? He's dead, he's deceived. This has got to be crushed and stopped. And then one day, not even looking for Jesus, he is walking down this road to Damascus and he is absolutely floored by Jesus. Absolutely floored by him. And face down in the dust, he discovers this stubborn fact. This Jesus who he thought was dead is actually alive. And when this man, Saul, collided with this truth of the risen Jesus, when these two things came together, you had the conversion of Saul. And in this moment, now now here's the thing. Depending depending on how it is that the Lord rescued, redeemed, saved, converted you, you may not have had like the, the light and the flash of Saul's conversion. You may not have had a voice coming down out of heaven. You probably didn't have, you know, scales falling off of your eyes. You probably didn't get blinded in the midst. You probably didn't have all of those things. But Saul's conversion does show us what every person has. And every person who meets Jesus and is converted by Jesus, rescued, redeemed by Jesus, has a moment where their life over here and the risen Lord over here collide together. Where this moment happens and where they are forever changed in that collision. Uh, Last year, about this time, it was February of 2015, uh, my family, so Laura and I and our three kids, um, partnered up with the Needham family, Jimmy and Kelly, and their couple of kids, and we went on a Colorado adventure. We we were doing this thing, and uh, so the the departure day, we're going to leave on a Sunday afternoon after church, and on departure day, um, come to find out, we we realized something had chewed through the wiring harnesses of Jimmy's van that we were going to take to Colorado, so we're like, that's a problem. And so um, I convince a friend of mine to let us borrow their 10-passenger van, so we're back on. And then um, we look at the weather, and there is a blizzard coming into Colorado that's going to turn into an ice storm in Texas. you remember last February, ice storm that moment? Who's going to let that stop them from driving right through it, right? I mean, who's going to let that deter them? So we've got blizzard turning into ice storm, all of that there, and we have the great idea that we're going to leave about... 2, 3 p.m., and we're going to drive straight through the night, and we're going to get to Colorado. And it goes well until we reach the panhandle of Texas. So, I mean, it's, it's going great. You know, we're not slipping and sliding. I mean, we're making our way down the road until we get there. We're in the panhandle of Texas and it's crazy. This is when snow is now covering a layer of ice on the road. There's snow three, four, five, six inches deep everywhere. It kind of looks like a blizzard's happening right now around us and we're driving in the middle of nowhere in the panhandle. And uh, it's about 11, 11.30 and Jimmy is taking like that 11 to like 2 or 3 a.m. shift. I'm thinking I've got like that 2.30 to like 6 a.m. shift going so I'm gonna fall asleep And they're going to drive and kind of do this thing, and then I'll wake up later and and pick it up. Now, what happens next is hard to put into words. It is hard to put into words. I wake up, and if somebody, like, you know, if they just startled you and they woke you up and they said, what's going on right now? You just got like... 0.5 seconds to describe what's happening. If somebody would have asked me that, I would have said, I am 100% convinced a snowman is attacking our van right now. That's what's happening right now. There is no such thing as visibility. Every window of that van has literally just snow, just, I mean, it's all over the place. And uh, the, the first thing I hear is like the snow hitting our van from all angles. The next thing I hear is Jimmy saying, Hold on, guys, hold on. And about that time, I'm realizing our vans pointed this way, but we're going that way. How How is this going down? So I'm realizing we are now off the road. We are going backwards, and I'm just thinking we're about to die. That's what's going to happen. I mean, just think about all the scenarios. You get a bar dish, and you flip. You wrap around a telephone pole. You do something that's going to be really bad. Well, as the story turns out, we could not have picked a better place to ever in our life slide off the road. Perfectly straight shoulder into just a wide-open field. We come to a nice, soft little stop out there. I mean, literally, it's like... We're going to die. We can't see anything. We're going to die too. it's a padded little nice stop. We're, we're Like if the road's going this way, we're looking this way in our van away from the road. That whole moment goes down. And here's what's probably the most memorable moment of everything for me. All five of our collective kids are asleep in the back. Not a one of them wake up. They don't know anything's even happened. I mean, we had the we're going to die moment. And then like, we're okay. Our kids are still asleep. The only thing it cost us was a $30 hubcap. We turn the van back on, drove off the little frozen tundra field, back onto the highway, and off we go. Now, I think that is an apt metaphor of how most people think about their conversion. It's a huge moment. Like, oh my gosh, it's such a memorable, huge thing that just happened. We have a moment, and then we get into the car of our life, and we drive right back on the road as if nothing ever happened. I think that is the predominant way that people see conversions. And hear me, that is not a conversion. A conversion leaves you altered. It leaves you changed. It's like when these two things roll together, your life and the risen Jesus, in such a way where the metal of your life begins to bend around Jesus. That's a conversion. And let me just clarify here. A person isn't converted because they decide they want their kids to grow up in a church. A person isn't converted because they want to turn over a new leaf in their life. A person isn't converted because like an act of the will where they're just going to kind of do better in their life. A person isn't converted because they had a big religious experience. I signed a card. I repeated a prayer. I walked out and I did something and it was huge. That is not necessarily a conversion. A, A person is converted, hear me on this, through a collision with Jesus. That's how a person is converted. When they get a glimpse of Jesus, when they get a sighting of Jesus that leaves them changed, that's a conversion. And without a bending sort of moment, a colliding sort of moment where your life bends around Jesus, you're not converted. A conversion requires that. This is what's at the heart of a conversion. Our lives meet Jesus in such a way where a train wreck happens. I love how Rosaria Butterfield in her book, um, Secrets of an Unlikely Convert, talks about this. She says, this word conversion is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face to face with the living God. And that's a conversion when our life is, and the risen Jesus come together in such a way where a train wreck happens. Then we've been converted. If you could just imagine um, this, this morning, you know, they f- you finish um, um, singing this morning. Valentine reads the passage and then I just don't show up. And we're all waiting and I get here like 15 minutes late. And I walk up onto the stage and I'm like, man, you're not going to believe what happened today. But, but here it is, I walked out of my house at like 8.30 and a Mack truck, I'm talking an 18-wheeler, a Mack truck mowed right over me. I mean, like the tire went across my legs, they dragged me for like 300 feet down the road. You wouldn't believe what happened, but hey, I'm here and we're doing this thing. Now, if I said that to you, you would rightfully think you are crazy. And in the same way, we are crazy to think that we can have an emotional moment with God without it changing us and call that a conversion. We are crazy if we think that. A conversion means a risen Jesus. The Mack truck has mowed over our life and there are scars and there are tattoos and there are things, scratches that come along with that collision. Our life is now bent around that risen Jesus. Maybe we could just say it this way. If you think you have been converted, but you've never had that sort of a life-bending you know, life bending around Jesus sort of a collision, I think you need to rethink that. If you have never had that life bending collision around Jesus, here is what that means. It means that you have not been converted. Part of what Paul's conversion shows us is what every conversion shows us, that there is a moment where these two things collide, our life, the risen Jesus, and life bending happens. Here's the third thing that we see in Paul's conversion. Number three, Saul's conversion shows us that right living will never save you. That right living will never save you. Here is one of the biggest ironies in the Bible. One of the biggest ironies in the Bible goes like this. I want you to to hear this and, and think through this. The irony is that the worse your sin, the more likely your salvation And the more moral your life, the more likely your spiritual death. I mean, this is one of the biggest ironies of the Bible. The worse your sin, the more likely your salvation, while the more moral your life, the, the, the better you live. The law-keeping, law-abiding, good, moral person, the more moral your life, the more likely your spiritual death. Now, the New Testament teaches this over and over and over again. If you've done any time in the New Testament, here's what you're going to find. The people who should be out are the ones in, and the ones who should be in are actually the ones that don't get in. They're the ones that are the outs. So if you think about this in the New Testament, your tax collector, and prostitutes. That's, that's the, the, the kind of word group summary of the worst of the worst in that culture. And what is so ironic about the New Testament is they're actually the ones who get the good news of Jesus. And then on the other side, you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees are your do-gooding, law-abiding, right-living people. They are the moral people of the day. And what is so ironic about the New Testament is they're the very people who don't get in. I mean, that is the irony. Now, the question is, why is that? Why are the, the, the worst people kind of that the live the worst, why are they the ones that actually get this thing? And the best people, the ones who are living the best, they're the ones that don't get it. Why is that? And I want you to, to hear this. Here is the reason why that irony exists in the Bible. There is one thing you need to get the good news of Jesus. If you're in here today and you're like, man, I want to be converted. I want to be rescued and redeemed and saved. I want that. There is one thing you have to bring to Jesus. And if you br- don't bring this one thing, if you try to bring anything else, you'll never be converted. You'll never be saved. You'll never be rescued and redeemed. And here is the one thing you have to have when you come to Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. The one thing you have to bring to Jesus is your need. And here's the problem. So few people can only bring their need to Jesus. Jesus. And here's how the dynamic sets up. Like, why is it that the tax collectors and the the prostitutes, why are they the ones who can actually bring nothing to the Lord while while the Pharisees can't bring their nothing? They want to bring all of their religious resume with them, all of their right living. Why why is that? Here's how the dynamic works itself out in the New Testament. It's because the worse a person's sin, the more likely he or she will know their need of Jesus and actually bring their need to Jesus. While on the other hand, the better a person's life, the more blind a person is to their need of Jesus and the more likely it is that they will stiff arm and reject Jesus. Now, is that not an irony? That the one thing you need is need. The one thing you need to bring to Jesus is nothing. And here is the hard truth. Like we need to settle over this for a minute, linger over this for a minute. The hard truth is that the better your life is, the more likely you're going to depend on your right living to secure you things with God. The, the more likely it is that you're going to believe that your salvation can be achieved. And hear me, your salvation can never be achieved. It can only be received. And the only people who can receive it are people who don't have anything in their hands. If if you put your right living in your hands, your good behavior in your hands, your good law keeping in your hands, your morality in your hands, and you come to Jesus, you have no room left in your hand to receive salvation. Now, Paul is a great example of this. So Paul is our man in this passage who, who was saved, rescued, redeemed by Jesus. And now think about Paul. Jimmy did a great job of talking about him a couple of weeks ago if you he were here. But Paul's religious pedigree is unmatched. You, you're, not going to, you're not going to match his religious pedigree. Um, Philippians 3 kind of walks us through that. You're just not going to get better than Paul when it comes to, to religious, a religious resume. If you put Paul's law-keeping up to your law-keeping or anyone else's law-keeping, I'm just telling you, Paul's gonna win that thing almost every time. You're not gonna get better than Paul's morality. You're not gonna get better better than Paul's law-keeping. You're you're just not gonna do better than that than Paul. Paul's zeal is unmatched. This, This brother is walking, not in a car driving. He is walking 150 miles to Damascus for the sake of God to do right by God, for the sake of right living. He is walking 150 miles to let some people have it who are defaming God in his mind. I mean, this dude is zealous. He is so zealous. And here's Paul's problem, Saul's problem at the beginning of Acts chapter nine. He is depending on his unmatched religious resume, his unmatched zeal, his unmatched law keeping, he is depending on all of those things to make him right with God. He is thinking like this, I can achieve my salvation. He is bringing something to God in that moment. And as long as there's something in your hand, you'll never have space to receive salvation from Jesus. Now, if if you were to go to Acts chapter nine, verse one, and you were to have a cup of coffee and a conversation with Paul, here's what you would find in Acts chapter nine, verse one. If you were to ask him the question, Saul, hey, do you think you're right with God? I mean, do you think you're all good? Do you think if you died now, you'd, you'd like everything would be great there? Like God's good with you, you're good with God, all that stuff is. He would look at you and think, "Are you even asking me that question? Are you? Do you do you know who I am? Look look at the religious pedigree. Look at my life. Look at my right living. Do you see? Are you asking me? Do you think I'm right with? Yes, God would probably be pleased to have me. Yes, we're we're all good here. And yet. There is a moment in Acts chapter 9 where he is flattened by the voice of God. He is laying with his face down in the dust when he realizes this jaw-dropping truth. He doesn't even know this voice of God that's talking to him. He has no idea who God is. See, in this way, Saul's conversion is a warning for all of us. And the warning goes like this. There is no amount of right living, law keeping, good morality sort of life. There's no amount of that that will ever secure your standing before God. That our salvation is always received. It cannot be achieved. And if you're trying to achieve it, you will never receive it. That is the warning that Paul gives us here, that Saul's conversion gives us. See, here is like the street level belief that so many in our culture have. And you just test your own thinking about God. Here's the street level belief. Street level belief is if I'm a good moral sort of a person, like I do the right things, I pay my taxes, I, I kind of do the right things. If I'm just kind of a good moral person, when all the, you know, the dust settles and the smoke clears, God is going to be okay with me. Surely he will. Now, I, w- I just want to say this as empathetically as I can. If you think that about God, it's not because you saw it in the Bible or learned it in the Bible. It's because you've made it up about God. What what we learn in the Bible is that is an impossibility. Your, Your right living and morality cannot achieve for you salvation. It doesn't have the capacity. You will never live good enough to achieve it. It's an impossibility. It can only be received. One of the things I love about our baptism services is that we let people tell their story of how the Lord saved them. And if you've been around for any of our baptism services, you'll, you'll find this story is, is evident in almost all of our baptism services now. There will be someone who stands up you know, and gives the story of, man, I, I was the person who grew up around church. I, I've got this religious resume. Man, I can quote you verse and chapter. I can preach that sermon. I can, I've got the Roman road you know, memorized. I, I can preach the, you know, the pain. I can do all of those things. I just never actually knew Jesus. I just never like turned from my sin or my good living. I just never turned from all of those ways of trying to be right with God and through my life upon Jesus. And today's the day. And I just wonder how many of us in the room this morning need that day to be today. Where we turn from our religious resume, we turn from thinking our right living is gonna make us okay with God. And we just hear from the Lord, it can't do it. You're going to be doomed in your sin if that's your approach. But, but here's the great news. The Bible actually gives us something much better than that. The, the Bible, God through the Bible says, hey, could we make this trade? What, what if you brought me all of your sin? I, I would love to take that from you. And if you'll be humble enough to, to actually bring your need, to bring your nothing, to bring your sin to me, I'll receive that from you. And here's what I'll give you in return. I'll give you the perfect righteousness of my son back. Could we make that trade? Could, could I, would, you let, would you be humble enough? Would you bring your nothing to the point where you would let me take your sin? I mean, this is the great news of the gospel. Let me take your sin so that I can then give you the righteousness of my son, salvation, conversion, redemption, great would you, would you be okay if we did that that's the great news of the gospel but no amount of right living can do that for you Saul's conversion reminds us of that it warns us of that here's the fourth thing Saul's conversion shows us the gospel it shows us the gospel you see it in verses four and five and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me And he said, who are you, Lord? And and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I want to just point out two things this passage shows us about the good news of Jesus. Here's the first one. It shows us God's initiating grace. God's initiating grace. Here's the storyline of the Bible. God creates in his kindness, overflow of his big heart, he creates. He puts our first parents in a garden and gives them everything they need. They are lavished with grace and kindness and mercy from the Lord. And in response to that grace and kindness and big heartedness from God, our first parents rebelled against God. They sinned against God. They usurped the authority of God. They, they, They ran and revolted from God. Now our first parents are representatives of us. They show us, Adam and Eve show us what we would have done if we were in the garden. And at the same time, they show us what we do now. They're representatives in in that way for us. That they show us that we have all taken the big hearted kindness of God and we have smeared that in his face if we have sinned against him. That's your story. That's my story. That's all of our stories. But the Bible shows us that God doesn't leave us there in our sin that even when we take his kindness and press that right back in his face, he he doesn't push us away. God still comes after and pursues us with grace. He doesn't cast us off, but he actually comes to us in his grace. See, this is what I love about Acts chapter nine. Let's just answer this question. Is Paul looking for Jesus in Acts chapter nine? He is not looking for Jesus in Acts chapter nine. And here's the great news about it. You don't have to be looking for Jesus for Jesus to be looking for you. You do not have to be looking for Jesus for him to be looking for you. Paul's not looking for him and all of a sudden he runs straight into him. He is floored. He is spoken to. This is all the initiating grace and kindness of God. That's one thing we see about the good news of Jesus is that that through Jesus, God pursues us. He woos us. He wins us over. Here's the second thing we see about um, the good news of Jesus and Paul's conversion. We see... Um, what is a four-word summary of the gospel. We, we see in this passage a four-word summary of the gospel. And you see this in verse four. When Jesus talks to Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if I'm Saul, here's what I'm saying back to that. I am not persecuting you. I'm persecuting some people over here, but I'm not persecuting you. And, and now Jesus responds by saying, yes, you are, Saul. When you persecute my followers, you are persecuting me. When you do good to me, you do good to them. You see, what Jesus is walking us into is the heart of the Christian gospel. And at the heart of the Christian gospel is our union with Jesus. That when we turn from our sin and throw our life upon Jesus, what happens in that moment is he now is in us and we now are in him. Here's the four-word summary of the gospel that this passage alludes to. It's Jesus in my place. That is what this passage is showing us in seed form. The heart of the gospel, it's Jesus in our place. The four word summary, Jesus in our place that we are so deeply connected with him and and him and us and and us in him that it's literally him in our place. We get what he deserves and he gets what we deserve. That's the heart of the Christian gospel. Let me just put it to you in a metaphor. I want you to picture a massive valley. We'll just call this valley down here, the valley of sin. And in this valley that we'll call sin, we are all living our lives. And periodically, we'll look up from the Valley of Sin. And when we look up here, we'll see this massive dam. And it's holding back this massive reservoir of water behind it. And we'll call that water that is holding back the water of God's wrath. So we're down here in the valley. The dam is up here holding back the water of God's wrath. And down here in the valley, we're just living our life. And every day that we live, we are accruing more and more wrath. It's more and more water being piled behind the dam. More and more, more and more. We do that through proactively sinning, just running right through God's guardrails in our life. And we do it through passively sinning. God says do this and we just don't do it. And every day we live, we're accruing more and more watery wrath up there. And there is a day that the Bible says that dam is going to break and the, the righteous and good wrath of God is going to come down, flow into the valley and swallow up everyone in the valley to their eternal ruin. The, the Bible says that the only thing holding back that watery wrath, you know, that dam, the only thing keeping that dam together is the patience of God, the kindness of God. That's the only thing keeping that watery grave from happening in all of our lives. Now, here is the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that God doesn't leave us in the valley of sin, but he sends his own beloved son down into the valley of sin. He lives perfectly in our place. He dies on a cross, resurrected from the dead on the third day. In essence, what God the son does is he comes and he is sent and he stands in between the valley of sin and this watery wrath, and as the dam breaks, God the Son spreads his arms wide open and he absorbs every last ounce of that watery wrath on our behalf. He gets everything we deserve for our sin so that we could then get everything he deserves. He takes our wrath and we get his welcome. He is slayed for our sin and we are saved. Do you see how that works? He takes everything we deserve and then we, and just a, massive act of grace from God, we are then given everything that his beloved son Jesus deserves. That is the good news of Jesus. This is what this passage is showing us. Jesus in our place. Here's the last thing we learn. Number five. The fifth thing that Saul's conversion does for us, that we learn from it, that we receive from Paul's conversion is Saul's conversion gives us hope. Saul's conversion gives us hope. You know, it's interesting later on, Paul refers back to this moment in Acts 9 when he is rescued and redeemed. And here is how he refers to Acts chapter 9. This is gonna be in 1 Timothy 1. 15 through 17. This will be on the screen for you. Just listen to how Paul describes his conversion experience and kind of what he says that we should glean and learn from it. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Aren't we grateful for that? He came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I'm the biggest one of them all, he says. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. My conversion is meant to be a help to you like this, he is saying. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In essence, Paul is looking at us and he's saying, here's something that you need to glean from my conversion. Here's something that every one of you can take from my conversion. Here it is. If God can save me, he can save anyone. That if God can can love me, he can love you. If God can rescue me, he can rescue you. Paul's saying that, that should be the lesson that we all take from this moment. See, there's two ways that pride can keep us away from Jesus. Here is one way pride can keep us away. Pride can keep us away from Jesus by us looking at our life and saying, I don't even see any sin there. Why would I need Jesus? That, that is one way for pride to keep us away from Jesus. I just, I, what do I have to need to be forgiven for? I mean, when you're looking at perfection, what else do you need? That's one way. But here's the other way pride can keep us from Jesus. So, so if one way is we look at our life and we don't see our sin, therefore our need for Jesus. The other way is we look at our life and all we see is our sin. And we don't think we can be saved by Jesus. Now hear me, Though both of those two ways of relating to God are both full of pride. One is I can't see my sin. The other is all I can see is my sin. One produces the feeling of I don't need salvation. The other produces the, the feeling of there's no way I could receive salvation. And part of what Paul's story, his conversion is meant to convince all of us of is this reality. Paul shows us that we're all in need of grace and we're all within the reach of God's grace. Now hear that again. Paul's story shows us that we all need grace. If you're depending on anything other than the grace of God dealt out to you in the person and work of Jesus to make you right with God, you are doomed in the end. But, But we all need grace. And on the other side of this stick, we all are within the reach of God's grace. Like, I don't care what you have done in your life. You are not beyond the reach of God's grace. And you know how I know that? If God can save Paul he can save you. Do you know how I know that? If God can save me, he can save you. That you're not beyond the reach of God's grace. You're not. You are within the reach of God's grace. See, Paul's conversion is meant to be a living, breathing witness to this reality. God can save you. Now hear me on this. It's not just Paul's conversion story that's meant to be a living, breathing witness to that reality. It's all of our conversions. See, part of what we're meant to take home from every conversion is we all need grace and we're all within the reach of God's grace. So here's how I wanna end our service today. I wanna end by allowing you to listen to four or five stories within our church family of the Lord, just like he did for Paul, colliding with them and rescuing and redeeming them. So listen to these.
2: At our church, we were in Bible classes all week and I became consumed with fear of where I was gonna go when I died, and was I gonna to go to heaven or hell? Because I believed in God, so I believed heaven and hell were real, but how could I be sure that I was gonna go to heaven and not hell? Well, I understood too that God only allows people that are forgiven to come to heaven. So how was I gonna get forgiven for all the bad things that I had done? Um, I knew also that Jesus was the only way to uh, be allowed to get to heaven and be forgiven of those sins. So as a child, I trusted in Christ that he rose from the dead to forgive me of my sins and that I was saved. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home and grew up knowing a lot about God and a lot about the Bible, but as a teenager, Um, Just decided to pursue whatever uh, felt good in life, whether that was success at sports, girls, drugs, alcohol, pornography, you name it, I pursued it. Um, And then as a sophomore in college, I transferred to a little Bible college and began really encountering God's word um, and began encountering just the truth of Jesus and what he did on the cross for me. And one day um, I was just overcome with conviction over my sin and the double life I was leading. And uh, on the way to church, I didn't even make it to the church. Uh, God just rescued me in my truck. Um, I just broke down, and uh, man, He just wrestled my life out of my hands, and I haven't been the same since. Hallelujah. I also was raised in a believing home um, with parents who t- had taught me the truth. And I thought I was a believer, and I went on mission trips and attended church. and uh, But my life looked good on the outside, good grades and things like that. But my heart was ruled by myself, and I decided what I wanted to do. And uh, I had no conviction over whether my motives were uh, in line with the Lord. And um, it wasn't until I was in medical school that um, the Lord, through challenge and pain. um, He just brought me down to the end of myself. And I was like the prodigal son, just realizing I was eating from a trough of the world that was just trash. And it was at that point and from that point on that I said, you can be in charge of my life. Not only do I trust you for my salvation from your wrath, but I, I trust you to be in charge of my life and that whatever course you have for me, whether it has pain or not, um, that you're a good father and you're worthy of trusting. And so um, from that point on, he has ruled and reigned. Um, that's it. Amen.
1: Uh, so I grew up in a Christian home, had Christian parents, mom that prayed for me all the time. And uh, I just had no desire to know this God that my mother worshiped. I had no desire to want to, to live for him. And Um, I chased everything. I chased uh, drugs, gang life, um, I chased pornography, you name it, I was running after it. Just to give you a picture of how deep in sin I was, I was in the eighth grade classroom, I was 13 years old, and the dean of the school and two sheriffs walked into the classroom and said, we need to see Andre Gray. My teacher pointed to the back of the class and I walked, I was walking with these two sheriffs and this dean to the principal's office i never forget the words this dean said to me. He said, Andre, your days of being a drug lord in our middle school is over. And then in the ninth grade, I had a principal. I was getting expelled from school. I was getting into fights all the time, always getting suspended, and they were expelling me from school. And uh, the principal looked at my mother and said, uh, Mrs. Gray, your son has more control over my students than I do, and I just can't have that. And so I'm going to have to expel him. And uh, tenth grade, I was 15 years old. It was August of 2005, I was walking into a youth group uh, for the local church that my family was attending with no desire to want to be there. I had plans to go to a party after. I wasn't listening to the sermon, didn't engage in worship. But for some reason, at the end of that service, as that pastor was giving that altar call, I had this strong urge to walk up there, and I didn't know why. And I walked up, and I had a definitive moment with Jesus Christ. And that next morning, Saturday morning, I walked into that church for leadership training, trying to figure out what does it look like to live for this man that I met the night before.
3: Okay. Um, I wasn't looking for Jesus when he found me. Um, on my faith journey, I have several markers in my life that Uh, are really significant to me Um, most of them were when I was really young but several when I was when I was an adult and I'll just tell you about one of those and that was um, my brother's baptism we were from a very impoverished uh, little segregated town in Louisiana um, and one day my brother was going to get baptized my mom was the daughter of a Baptist preacher she took us to church all the time but at my brother's baptism, um, there was only one baptistry for all the black churches on this side of the tracks that we lived on. And um, so whenever there was someone who was going to be baptized, we would walk from our churches to the baptistry that was outdoors. And just going through the streets, singing hymns, people would be coming out of their houses in droves, just joining in the, the procession. Um, Baptist, baptism people had on white robes, and there's all this singing, and we get to the, to the baptistry, and I hear my granddad start to preach about eternity and about Jesus. And when I was about five years old is when that happened, and that was just such an impactful day for me, and, that, and, and, and my life has never been the same since.
0: Why don't you pray with me? Paul's conversion, these conversions are all meant to impart hope that we all need grace and no one's beyond the reach of grace. I love how one of my favorite pastors defines the good news of Jesus. He says it this way. We're all idiots. It's the humbling part. We're all trapped in our sin. Can't can't find our way out on our best day. We're all idiots, but we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. He's lived for us. He's died for us. He's opened up the way out of sin to human flourishing, to all that God would have us be. We're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. And here's the part I love about the good news of Jesus. And anyone can get in on this. Anyone. Anyone who brings their nothing to Jesus gets in on this. Anyone willing to turn from their sin, to turn from their whatever their sense of righteousness and what makes them okay with their life, anyone willing to turn from all that and to throw their life upon Jesus, they can get it. Anyone who wants it can have it. Anyone who wants in can be in. And I just wonder how many of us this morning need to have that moment, that that moment. You know, for some of us in here, that moment means we're looking at our morality and our right living and we're recognizing that we have been depending on our right living to secure us and to achieve for us our salvation. Saul's conversion shows us if it doesn't work for Saul, it would never work for us. He's showing us, he's warning us, that will lead to your eternal ruin. Salvation is not achieved. It's always received. It always happens when we bring our nothing to God. So I I just can't imagine, but some of us in this room today need to turn from our morality, our right living, all of those things that we've been depending on and we need to throw our life upon Jesus. So this is that moment for that. If that's you in the room today, man, we just wanna give you some space to, to talk to the Lord, to allow the Lord to talk to you. Maybe you're a person that's been depending on some religious experience back in your past that has produced no change in you. Maybe you're the person who, you're depending on this big emotional moment While all the while, when you look at your life, there's never been a collision that has shaped and bent your life around Jesus. And if that's you, the Lord is saying to us with open arms, if you want it, you can have it. If you'll bring your nothing, I'll do it. If you'll open up your hand and receive it, I'll give it. So Father, will you talk to us? Father, if we are the religiously lost, those who are depending on our good deeds, thinking like Paul that they are securing our salvation, while all the while we are blinded to the fact of our eternal ruin that's gonna be running right into our life. Father, don't don't let us leave here today without being haunted by that. Keep us up at night. Don't let us sleep until we get that nailed down. And Father, I pray that right now would be that moment in many of our lives. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for grace that saves. Thank you for grace that pursues. Thank you for grace that doesn't give up on us. Thank you for grace that in the midst of all of our sin covers it all. It's in your good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.
1: For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.